excited to have Frank Kewley here with us. Did I pronounce your name right? That, perfect. Very good. Um, been wanting to get you on this little podcast for ages because we've heard of your experiences with a thing called holacracy. Hol- holacracy? Holacracy. <laughs> Spelt. Holacracy. <laughs> Spelt holacracy for people who want to look it up. Uh, which I would describe as a, an alternative management model to business. Was, is that what, the way you would look at it? Yeah, I, I, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's just another way of running the operation, governing the operation. Yeah, cool. So why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, your company and then I'll ask you a couple of other questions in terms of how you came across. Yeah, so 8Squad is just a it's, a, it's a salesforce.com implementation partner in essence, but really, I mean, the business is about helping customers through you know, digital transformation, leveraging the capability of technology. Um, we we try to take a very human-centered approach to, you know, anything we do from a technology transformation perspective. And uh, But really that's kind of – I classify that as what the company does. It's not the why that drives the business, you know. Um, you know, one of, the, one of the core principles of 8Squad that we're trying to kind of lean into was – how do we how do we break kind of how companies are run you know to do it differently right to get rid of kind of linear power hierarchy that typically exists in most companies and how do we put in a a human development framework that really focuses on building the individual not as an asset that the company is you know, it's the typical not just looking at building skills but building the person holistically right because Fundamentally, um, I believe if, if you equip people to deal with the stresses of life better, they show up better and that means they deliver better outcomes to your customer. So those two things were kind of cornerstone principles that really is the what I classify the stuff that we love that's the fun part of the business. You know, the, the why, the what we do could be anything. Um, you know, we wanted to create something that does things differently and that, that's pretty much what 8Squad's about. Very cool. The reason I ask that, you know, it's a, I would describe it as a, a, a company with traditional goals, right? So it's not a – like I've, I've run a lifestyle business myself, which is why I was interested in alternative models. I was more interested in the individuals, the employees in the company than I was in the, the one shareholder's value. Uh, and I hear echoes of that in what you're describing. But it's a, you know, it's a traditional business with, you know, I guess an exit one day as a potential. It's got investors. Yep. How do you reconcile those two things? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, we still have to run to the principles of, you know, what a traditional business has to run by, right? We've got shareholders. Um, I've got an external board who are the majority shareholders. They have expectations of profit and returns. Um but the two things can coexist um, and you do have to have you do have to have shareholders that also buy in on a vision and I think um, when when I was bought in to you know build this and take over and and expand it and grow it um, that was a non-negotiable for me you know I wanted to do it differently I wanted to you know I had to I had to have that freedom to lean in and provided I can meet the the metrics that you know they they wanted as a group of investors and they had no problem um 
but the interesting thing is even in tough times, right, that tests everything, you know. Um, the conditions of the market have been tough, right? So you're not necessarily always hitting those um, financial performance metrics, right? Um, but again, you can still balance decisions that honour the initial conditions of what, you know, you started something and uh, and they're just, they're just business decisions you've got to make, you know, and, and, and it's never perfect but but – Ultimately, I had a, a good board that was still very supportive that, you know, they've seen the difference of leaning into that whole human-centred, human development, you know, uh, philosophy has delivered and they've allowed me to stay pretty committed to that. What, what are those benefits they've seen? Um, Let's move towards the microphone when you talk. What are those benefits? <laughs> <laughs> Look, <coughs> so I think... Um, Firstly, talent attraction. We scaled very fast, right? And I think it was very clear that, um, you know, we were able to attract good people in a very competitive they can see that and they might not be able to put their finger on that thing but they can sense it they can see it yeah but then you know we also you also see that applying these philosophies and these methods the real tangible benefits it has when you have to take people out of struggle street and turn them around because things are always going to go wrong you know we've got projects going wrong you've got all, all sorts of things happening on a you know day-to-day basis and our approach to turning those things around is quite unique and different and they see mm-hmm. they see the result of that right so mm-hmm. um you know can you translate that down to um what that means to a bottom line right i think i think that'd be hard especially under the extraordinary conditions of the past kind of number of years right we've just had one crisis after another to deal with right um i think if you really want to answer that you've got to look at well how have other companies performed and mm. you know what's been the impact on them are they still around do they go backwards do they go forwards you know um and maybe then you can probably say well you know is what we're doing better or worse right but um either way i think uh we've with you know i think we've been able to because of these things sustain right hold and put ourselves in a pretty good position uh to as conditions change in the market take advantage mm-hmm. you mentioned that um that you joined the business after it was already there kind of um they uh the the board essentially bought a small company and uh, it was like 15 people and uh, that was kind of just a platform, right? It, it had revenue, it had some people, um, it had some skills uh, which we essentially pulled that business apart, remodeled and relaunched, you know. So um, then that's when they put me into then take that, do the transformation and, and, and launch the business. So, you know, we're now circa 100 people, right? Um that there's no remnants of that business now right so um it was just a a, a platform to 
launch something new? The reason I ask the question is that I've found when I'm trying to change the culture of something, yeah. it can sometimes be harder than starting fresh. Um, did you have some of those challenges or was the group small enough that you could? No, 100%. Um, you still have, you know, 15, 20 people that you've, you know, you've got to convince them we're going on a different journey, right? Um, that takes time. You've got to break apart current ways of doing things, move it to a new way of doing things. Like it took a good year just to establish a new baseline to move forward from. Mm -hmm. And even then, um, the models then that we moved forward with, we tested, broke them back to the drawing board, right? So mm -hmm. the first two years were just about refining the model and testing the theories and, and refining the model. Mm -hmm. um, and then getting where we are now is the result of some of those big decisions we made which have now matured and where I can honestly say like we're seeing the benefits of those decisions. Mm -hmm. You also mentioned that uh, the board has seen some benefit uh, and you've talked about the fact that that's not necessarily okay, it's a, num a number. Can you sum that up in like a couple of words? Like w what is for you the commercial benefit for management for the board of, of running this model? Oh. Look, it, I won't put it down just to the model, right? But mm. we grew double, triple digit for the first three years straight mm. amongst the market that was quite competitive. We had COVID. We had a whole bunch of things, right? We literally, COVID hit like six months after we launched the business. Mm. Um, we had to attract talent where talent was exiting the market yeah because you know you had people couldn't get into the country you had all the visa issues so you you had a diminishing talent pool um you had uh turbulent market conditions and a new brand mm -hmm. new startup high risk yeah from an employee perspective mm -hmm. yet we were able to you know go from 15 to 100 and you think about how many people you have to hire yeah, it's yeah. not just the new heads, it's the churn of, you know, people come and maybe it's not for them and go and you've got to replace them. Mm -hmm. um, so, <laughs> you know, I, I, I think um, the fact that we're able to achieve those results had a, has a, has, has, is by, by a big part because of, the unique model because of the things that we were doing that were different and unique because that's what attracted people to us over other companies that, you know, were also heavy in market. Um, and I think the model allowed us to be nimble and make decisions fast and not everything, you know, rely on me, you know, as the CEO with the title, you know, that's the problem I think that a lot of people, especially if you're going to scale fast, like, you know, a lot of founders, a lot of entrepreneurs are the driving force behind their business. But it becomes – they become the linchpin as well. Yep. Um, so, you know, we tried to engineer that out from the very beginning, right? So – and I think that in a big way has helped us because it just – it empowers people to make calls, to make decisions. So – there's obviously a talent acquisition side of that, which is, okay, people are attracted to a business that's um, not command and conquer. And it sounds like you're also saying, I guess, a combination of resilience and uh, a genuine agility. I don't mean like agile with capital A. Yeah. Like agility to, to changes, agility to uh, grow quickly. 
as opposed to just sort of crumble and break from fragile command and conquer structures? Yeah, it... Look, you're still, you're still constrained by – we're a people business, right? So you're still constrained by capacity. Yep. Um, and any system, even one where you've got decentralized hierarchy, which is what we're talking about, mm-hmm. you still have hierarchy in that system. Mm-hmm. And um, it's just how decisions are made is, and how that's governed is different. Yep. So you still are constrained by capacity of humans. Mm-hmm. Um, so <laughs> – and that's the rub with financial metrics, right? Because you can't just throw more people because, you know, you've got to deliver a profit. Yep. So we still had all those problems, you know. Um, but, but what it did do, rather than personalities dominate how decisions are made and rather than personalities dominate what decisions are made, it allowed us to really ask the question, which role should be making what decision? Mm-hmm. And and have a governance process that that honours that. And I think that's what keeps good teams together, you know, like because, uh, you know, I can be a, a, a dominant force, you know, I know what I'm like. Um, uh, part of what makes me good at what I do is that, you know, if I've got an idea, I'll sell it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we didn't have a structure in place that, held me to account and actually um, almost dim the lights when it needed to be dimmed, you know, on on my ideas. Mm -hmm. Um, I know it would have been a very different outcome, right, to how we got here today. So the the model and structure forced forced me to have to actually back out of things and just allow other people to, you know, own it and make decisions and, 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 and run. And that was really important, mate, because... The shape of the team even, like you look at a leadership team and you know, how that grows, um, it, 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 it allows people to make mistakes and sometimes those mistakes can be significant, you know. Um, but at the end of the day, it doesn't mean that I would have done any better, yeah. you know. I'm not perfect. So it, it's a really important feature of, I guess, the, the, the governance model of holacracy. Mm-hmm. And I think um, now kind of... A few years into really adopting it properly, and I say properly because you know, like I said, when we first launched, we were half in. Mm-hmm. You know that didn't work. We broke that pretty quick. We went back to the drawing board, adopted it fully, and there was pain. But I think where we are now, and I look at the efficiency of how decisions are made, how change is adopted incrementally, often, mm-hmm. right? Like it's it's much better. Mm. Um, and it makes us much more efficient as a team. And you know what? Like, if I don't have, if I don't, if there there are parts of the business I just have no say in, and that's actually not a bad thing, you know. So, um, yeah, it, it just takes a real discipline to get to this point. It's not something that that you can get to easily. Mm. It might be a good time to just pause and just walk people mm. through a couple of the practical mm. differences between a distributed decision making model. Holacracy and what you would normally do. I don't know if you want to do that through examples or just. Yeah, you know. I think you, you you come back to one of the. You got to you you have to you have to, um, observe what, what what's the alternative, right? So you know, in most companies, hierarchy is linear. So what does that mean? It usually means power is linear. So, 
And and in sales training, they train you how to identify that, right? Who's in the political structure? So there's the formal political structure, which yeah. is based on an org chart. And then there's the informal, the political structure, which is how decisions are made, right? And that's based on relationships and personalities and, you know, who had success this year, you know, who had success, like who failed, you know, like it's based on a whole bunch of nuance that those power dynamics shift often. And you've seen it where in those type of companies generally, when there's a change in those – in those like in, in the – senior levels of those power hierarchies everything below it changes because you know all of a sudden you know the power hierarchy has been thrown in the air and someone new comes in and then they change everything because it's better because they say it's better and you know it's not necessarily and and you just see the the cards fall and then rebuild and start again right um and it's just a new version of really what they had right um now I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but it, you've got to recognise it for what it is. Um, what Holacracy tries to do is break that apart, yeah? And it does that by, number one, there has to be a hierarchy because any functioning system in nature has a hierarchy, right? It's mm-hmm. it's just a natural design of healthy systems, adaptive systems. But um, when you distribute the power in that hierarchy then you have to have things that limit that ability for personalities to dominate for personalities to you know so where it becomes a as long as you are closely connected politically to the people you can get decisions made you know if you're doing holacracy right the most junior person in your company if they have a good idea that idea should be have a pathway to being assessed to being um, tested and to getting adopted if it's a good idea, regardless of who that person is. Mm. And that's powerful, right? Because if, you know, whilst, you know, there's value in, in you know, if I say, if, if I want to take the positive view of power hierarchies, when you get smart people get to the top because they're smart, they know how to, you know, they've obviously got results and it's not always the case, but generally, right, like they've worked their way there. Therefore, they're good at making big calls, you know, the big strategic calls. But um, translating those calls to the machinery of the business on a day-to-day, there's a lot of people in the business that can equally make really smart decisions on how that hits, where the rubber hits the road. And unfortunately, that's where those kind of hierarchies fall over, right? Because if you're not close to the right people, you know, you never heard, and that's what Holacracy does really well, breaks that apart. It, it essentially forces you to take away the title of an individual. The, the, so example, the title of CEO does not exist in Holacracy. It just doesn't exist, yeah? So the question is, well, then what do you do, Frank, right? Well, a good question because <laughs> you actually have to start looking at, well, what is the work that that, per, that title would normally do? And that could be different, right, in, in, in any company, yeah? But it forced us to ask the question, well, what is the work that I need to do? And can we give that work a role, a name? So, you know, um, so one of those roles is board liaison, you know. So my role, I have I hold a role which is to basically liaise between the needs of the board and the needs of the business and make sure that the two things work and they marry up and they align. 
that's my role. That's my responsibility. I have the accountabilities that that define am I doing that role well. And the interesting thing is those accountabilities aren't defined by me. They're actually defined by the people who 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 have an expectation of the role. And that's everyone else but me, right? But the role has a purpose. And as long as an accountability fits the purpose, it gets adopted in governance, right? And so and when someone in the business feels attention, which is another key feature of holacracy, attention is just where they feel that there's something wrong. They feel that things are not working as they should. There's a there's a natural rub tension that needs to get resolved. So that could be um, I have an expectation that you as that board liaison communicate to my role things that may impact my role. Mm-hmm. I have an ongoing expectation that you're telling me that. Well, they've got a pathway to actually add that accountability to the role and then I have to I have to live I have to deliver against that accountability, right? And mm-hmm. unless there's a good reason that I feel that that actually it will have a negative event. And then I, then it's then it's a governance process that actually tests that and and there's a very rigorous process that's um, very independent and in those in and I can tell you now I've lost that battle many times, right? As a CEO where you know, I just I lost, and and there was you know, <laughs> secretaries and facilitators to keep me honest, um, and that's a good thing. That's a really good thing, and and that allows true creativity, right? So creativity, you think about it. Creativity is infinite, as long as there's a good set of basic initial conditions that are followed, basic rules. Yeah, mm-hmm. when you don't have some basic rules, creativity actually. Is, is very difficult because it's chaos, yeah? You know, you think about the old rules of systems, yeah? When there's no order and there's chaos, it's, the system will never orient, will never get creative and adapt. Mm-hmm. So you need some basic rules and that's what Holacracy does. It gives you just some very strong basic rules that within that you can have infinite creati- creativity. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the good thing and those rules are not defined by a person. They're defined by the constitution of holacracy. And that's also very important, right? Because I don't, I can't change my mind on, you know, how we do that. That is defined. Mm. And, and regardless of who you are and what, what title you think you come into the business with. Mm. And that's, I think, very powerful. And that allows, that's what allows for the true um, distribution of 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 decision making because you look at it from the perspective of what role has what accountabilities and what domains does that role have have agency over mm-hmm. i'm reminded of roles and responsibilities as they're defined in a traditional mm. company and i'm hearing differences um it sounds it, am i right in saying that they're not all hierarchically decomposed. So Absolutely not, yeah. Which is what they normally are, right? So Correct. Normally, if I've got a role, I decompose the, the bits of that thing into the people below me. Mm-hmm. It sounds like holacracy. I think you've, you've talked about circles. Is that what circles do? Circles, so, yeah, circles, you can think of a circle as like traditionally from a business unit. Like you might have an operation circle, you know, you might have a, a product circle, you might have – you can design your circles any way you want, right? Um. And the circles are a sub-circle of the, the main circle, of the, 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 the kind of core circle. In, in, our, in our business, we call that the nation, eight-squad nation, right? And then we've got sub-circles, yeah? Now, 
the subcircle has accountabilities defined by the, the nation and the, and the rest of the circles in the business, right? Now, the circle lead, which is, again, it's not the, the leader, it's the circle lead, which is a very specific role, has an accountability to make sure that that circle delivers against the accountabilities that are set upon it, yeah? Mm-hmm. Now, it may choose to then delegate those accountabilities based on roles that are created in the circle, but that happens based on its governance, its circle governance, yeah? Mm-hmm. So, so because a circle lead just needs to make sure that the circle is delivering on the purpose and delivering on its accountabilities, mm-hmm. yeah? Um, and so a role in holacracy is really about the work being done and it really forces you to be very clear. What is the actual work being done? So it's not, and it's not a one-to-one relationship with a soul, right? So one soul can have multiple roles. Mm-hmm. So it really does force you. So in a traditional, in the old traditional sense, see, a role mm-hmm. was a title, and you know, over time, because a person might choose to take on more things, that role kind of grows, and they end up doing a lot of things that was never in their original JD, but, you know, because they're just really good and so they take on more responsibility, more accountability. Mm. In Holacracy, you can't do that. It's just, you can't do that. So the minute you start taking on more work and that work doesn't fit within the role purpose that you occupy, well, it kind of forces you to think of, is this another role, Mm. right? And then it keeps, so it's very granular in that sense. Mm. And it's actually really good because you can actually then start to see actually the work that's being done and who's doing it. So when you've got one person kind of occupying five roles and you look at the, the, the workload, you can clearly see what is being done and actually hold on, are we now, do we actually, do we have to bring in another soul here because, you know, we can see where the breakdowns are, what, you know, how, how what, what actual... Uh, <laughs> what work is being done across these roles which happens to be occupied by this one person or multiple people because that's the other thing. Multiple people can hold the same role, right? So it's got features like that that really force you to get granular in in how you organise yourself for the work that has to be done. And whenever there's a tension which is simply something's not working, yeah, Mm -hmm. it's either a tension because... There's a role that doesn't exist. It's either attention because there's a policy that needs to be put in place or some clarity on interactions between roles. And that's the governance process. The governance process, which we have, most circles have a governance meeting every two to four weeks, right? And every governance meeting, something has changed and it's adopted and then it's executed. And that's really the key feature of Holacracy. Mm. So... In a normal organisation, there's this tension between um, the team that I'm in for performance um, measurement versus usually, especially in a consultancy, right, where you're delivering work for clients, you're also in temporary teams to deliver a particular thing. How, how does that translate into are there, are there primary circles and secondary mm-hmm. circles? Or like, how yeah, that's that a good, that's a great question. Um, so. Most of our delivery people would sit in a delivery circle, yeah? Mm-hmm. So as projects form, obviously then, um, you know, roles in that circle have to allocate people to work, yeah? Mm-hmm. There is no reason why for a, 
a long like a a, a long running project that it can't be its own circle, mm-hmm. you know, and operate as a circle. Um, and then you can tear it down when the, the that thing's finished, right? We haven't gone to that level yet, mm-hmm. um, but essentially, um, you know, those teams would operate, you know, as as a, as an integrated team, um, but they're still part of the delivery circle. So. If they're experiencing challenges, tensions, they still process that through the governance process in a delivery circle. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, but it's interesting because I think as we get better, as more people understand how to play the game, because um, you know not every single employee is involved in the holacracy governance process today. Yeah, and we've rolled it out circle by circle. Yeah, so. You know that change management process. We didn't want to bombard the organisation. Some people just had to get on and do what they do, and they don't need to know. But the way we've introduced them is when they've come up with ideas or things, you know, that could be changed. We've helped use the process to introduce that change. Where they can, oh, is this is how you do it, right? So play the game, learn the rules, play the game, kind of thing, right? Um, I think as we get better. Yeah, it'd be kind of interesting. And again, is the you know founding organisation of of the method and. We had one of their coaches who um, worked with us through the implementation. We're now independent and we just seek advice for them on the tough decisions or the tough mm-hmm. things we've got to negotiate with and it's taken us a, a kind of just over a year to get there. Um, but, um, yeah, we chose to do it big circles, main circles and start to roll it out that way and, and that's worked for us. Mm-hmm. That actually is, is – is, I, I wouldn't do it differently. Mm-hmm. Um, but does that mean if you're another business, you know, would you do it the same way? Well, I don't know. You know, I think if you're if you're small enough, because um, we remember we we got to about forty or fifty people before we broke that kind of squad model that we had instrumented, which was half in with holacracy. You know, mm-hmm. um, so we already had fifty people in the business when we started, right? Um, and so we just said no. Let's let's do this gradually. If we were maybe you know twenty, we probably could have done it. Mm-hmm. You know, um, holy holus bolus. You know, like one go bang, get everyone in. But uh, yeah, I, and I think I think any organisation, um, yeah, there's in Australia there was really no precedent known for us to talk to. I think we're probably one of the first to really go deep. Um, I know others have tried and not necessarily had much success. Um, I know there's some uh, a lot of companies in Europe, similar size to us, who have you know who have done very well. And I, from people that I've spoken to, most have done this incrementally. Mm-hmm. I, I I I know the Zappos story went kind of big bang. Um, um, I think they were about 300 people when they started that journey. Um, it comes down to it comes down to um, just time and money, right? Like if you can get enough support, you can probably do it more aggressively. But you would need a lot of support. Like I just got to – It's a change. It is a change management process, and you can't underestimate it. Yeah, there's a lot of work to even implement from scratch something, right? Hundred like percent training, coaching. So if you're doing it across your whole organization, even if it's small, all at the same time, it's. Because I was going to ask you. If, there's an overhead, obviously, to managing the system, right? Yeah. Or a perceived overhead, at least. But it sounds like one of the ways you've managed that is to not just do it all at once. Yeah. Yeah. And and actually, the overhead, to be honest, like it's actually more efficient. Like once you get going, 
once you get that kind of tipping point, it's it's it is more efficient, and it is easier. And you are like I look at you know these standards for ISO and you know quality standards. Hey, you do holacracy right, you can tick all those boxes because everything is documented. You know, like everything is expressed, everything is clear. You know, like you have you have to get to that fine level of granularity, and because you do it iteratively, the overhead's very minimal. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, what happens with most companies, right, is, you know, they operate and until something's really broken, then they've got to do a big transformation and that's a heavy lifting, you know, you've got to break things apart, what's documented, what's not. With this method, because you're doing it constantly and it's just iterative, it's just a lot smoother. So I think once you get going, this actually is a lot more efficient um, and definitely a lot more robust. It reminds me of Kanban, actually. When I first tried Kanban and I read a you know, an InfoQ thing about, I think it was leave Scrum behind and try Kanban type thing or Kanban for Scrum Agilist or something. Uh, And I remember just the simplicity of the model meant that I could take up the philosophy immediately. Like there was just so few rules. And within 24 to 48 hours, I had made decisions differently based on Kanban. Yeah. And this philosophy of limited whip and, you know, only having a certain number of things in a column. And I was like, oh, oh we're not supposed to do that. And it, it was just like the fastest change I've ever seen occur. And it, sound, it sounds to me like a similar thing. Yeah. It's the hardest thing I think about adopting these kind of new, whether it be holacracy or anything else, right? It's such a different way of thinking. And unfortunately, we are all so conditioned to very traditional ways of operating and so you got to break that, you know, and, and people come in, like we're at a point now where because we hire people into the business, into roles and you see the resistance and now it's like, mate, this is it. There's no question. We don't need, <laughs> we don't need to sell this to you. Like we've done this now. We know it works. Like you're either on or you're off, right? Um, and we can be a little bit more aggressive with that um, because you just can't, like there's no halfway. You either do this or you don't. You want to work here? This is how we work, you know. Um, you covered that in the interview, I guess. Yeah. And, um, but people don't know, mate. Like people hear it in an interview and they love the sounds of it until they realise they've got to change how they make decisions mm. and change, like break apart everything they held dear in everywhere else they've ever worked, right? Um, and that takes a bit of time. But, but by and large, like any system, right, once you've got – it's like, you know, I always use a story. Um, anyone who's been to Bali – has experienced what it's like when you get thrown into a system that's past the tipping point, right? Like you can go to Bali, you don't have to know the road rules, but you're going to learn them pretty quick, right? Because, <laughs> yeah, you're right, because you throw yourself into that chaos, but it looks like chaos from the outside. But there's, you know, some good basic rules that they all follow and and it works, right? And you don't know, you don't know the rules when you get there, but you get on your little bike, you get on the road and all of a sudden everyone's beeping and everyone's moving this way and you realise actually there's no lights or that or no one listens and you learn pretty quick, right, because you've got feedback loops. Mm-hmm. Yeah, feedback loops of people screaming at you, feedback loops of bikes beeping at you. Hospital. <laughs> so, so you learn pretty fast mm-hmm. and, and, and it just took us time to get to that point where you can throw someone in that system and there's at least enough feedback loops for them to learn while doing and as we get bigger and as we kind of get now past that tipping point threshold, 
I think it'll become a lot easier when we're throwing people into that system because they'll learn through osmosis, you know, it won't be such an effort. But it's hard, you've got to get to that point. I think, yeah, yeah just, sorry, uh, I've got, got so many questions. Um, so is there a role, is there a training role for new newcomers yeah. or is it literally just feedback? No, so we now have um, the, in our um, people and culture circle, um, we have a, holacracy coach and holacracy onboarding role so we have a team of people that who help new employees in and potentially anyone spinning up a new circle in in the process of doing that you know so we now have internal capability to kind of coach people through that journey interesting had one other leftover question from before so I think what you're saying is that the roles, part of my brain is going, like my little data modelling brain is going, is are all roles defined in the context of at least one circle or are those things separate? Circles and roles, you can have a role that doesn't relate, isn't necessarily linked to a circle. Um, well, it's always going to be in a circle, whether it's whether it's in an eight squad nation, yeah, the, the super circle, or whether it's in one of the sub-circles. Because a role and a circle are essentially they kind are, of the same so they're, thing, they're right? Totally linked, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, it's always going to exist somewhere. It can't sit outside of right. the core, at least the anchor circle. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. Sorry, it's just making me think about you said eight squad. Then does it make you think that you should change it to eight hollow? Has it <laughs> come up for rather than the, the attachment to squad? No, you know what? I still, I still, I still like like it's interesting because I've been asked that, right? Um, <laughs> you know, we still. We still like the fact, you know, the idea, right, that there is a natural number when you look at group grouping of people, you know, and when you start to break that number, quality of, of outcome stops to erode because, you know, just feedback mm-hmm. loops, right? Um, and, and you know, you could have called it seven squad, could have called it nine squad, but eight sounded good, you know, and it, and it was infinite and a whole lot of things, right? But, it's uh, lucky. Right, and it was a bit lucky, right? So exactly, it's it's you know certainly in Asia, it's going to be a very lucky number. So you're not going to be behind the eight ball, no. <laughs> like that, I'm going to use that. Um, so you know, um, the essence of you know um, keeping teams small, nimble, right? Like, and 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 looking at the the the, the distribution of like leadership. So that your your more your most junior people are never too far away from good senior leaders, right? And that still rings very true in this business. Um, and you know, when a circle gets too big, right, it's forcing you to go. Well, okay, do we need to start looking at sub circles? We need to break it down. We need to break it out, right? So those principles, those founding principles of Eight Squad of nimble teams, you know, SA, you know, like special forces, right? still absolutely rings true um and holacracy supports that mm-hmm. you know it, it doesn't it, it it's not a an opposing philosophy mm-hmm. it's interesting actually the special forces um comparison because a lot of people i think a lot of people don't appreciate that the special forces in each of the defense forces and then the combined one like the delta force in the U- in the u.s are specifically different from the normal command and conquer, right? So they they are the practices of yes. distributed decision making, yeah. making decisions at the 
point closest to where the information exists. They have to be. And multi-skilled as well, right? Yep. So, you know, they all learn multiple skills. They're not just, they don't just shoot or, uh, you know, even even snipers, right? They, they, yep. they, they have a bunch of other skills that they bring to the team. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <coughs> I, I find it, it's a feeling as opposed to an academic thing, um, viscerally very attractive. You know, something in me goes, hmm, I got that. Cognitively, I find it terrifying. <laughs> um, and there's a lot of peop- um, questions I have around behaviours and where I've seen, um, you, know, you guys both exploring it a minute ago, you know, people are attracted to auto- autonomy, an ecosystem of autonomy, you know, the pursuit of mastery autonomy and yeah. pushing those damn pink stuff. But once they have it, they don't know what to do with it. Uh, you yeah. know, it's, it's, Absolutely. It's, it's chaos. There's a, there's a thought there, but I need to go into a second question that, that then you can pick your order you want to answer. Um, it, it reminds me of um, systems that are designed to empower large groups of political systems, large groups of people, and um, the long arc of those systems is they're ultimately corrupted, you know, um, and and so. But but the military is a really good counter example of where you know it's evolved and probably won't be corrupted. That that autonomy will be preserved. You can imagine in Delta teams. Mm-hmm. So what distinctions do you think are drawn between the military systems that will endure um, beyond this, and then the political systems which are unfortunately doomed for corruption those that you know espouse cooperation and you know um, representation of of bigger groups and I'm, I'm obviously I'm talking about socialism communism those type of things right I mean so there's a lot in that so do you have to accept that this is a golden era and ultimately the long arc is doomed to failure because these type of systems have always struggled or are you going to implement militaristic type controls to make sure that doesn't so yeah, interesting. So, again, because the controls of the system are fundamentally governed by the holacracy constitution, they're the rules, mm-hmm. and you can't change that. Mm-hmm. You can use those rules to make decisions. Mm. And, and, and if political systems actually work this way, they'd work. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah? Mm. The reason they don't, is because political systems are driven by a voting dynamic, mm-hmm. and that's why they're corrupted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they're not held. They're, they're they're not held to the governance process. Right, that's what we see. But this like popularity doesn't matter in holacracy. Mm-hmm. That's the difference with a political system. Yeah? yeah, like I can be popular. It doesn't give me any more authority to make decisions based on the constant what I'm what I'm have authority to make based on the roles I occupy. Simple as that. Um, and we all held and governed by that constitution. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's enough checks and balances in that system to keep that honest, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if I tried to corrupt that, we wouldn't be practicing holacracy. Mm-hmm. Simple as that. Um, as a CEO, that title, I only have two decisions I can make when it relates to holacracy. I either adopt the constitution and run by those rules or I don't, right? So <clears throat> if the organisation calls bullshit, right, because, you know, I'm conveniently using it, well, 
then that's it. We just rip out holocracy and, you know, go back to a traditional way of working. Um, so, so, so come back because there's so many levels to your question. Um, I think it's different to a political system, mm-hmm. even though it kind of sounds kind of like it. But um, I honestly, if this to me is actually how political systems should, mm-hmm. should be run, mm-hmm. right? It feels that way. Yeah. Um, you know, when you think about military systems, right, the reason why these special forces units work because they still, again, like holocracy, I think it actually marries really well, right? Mm-hmm. You, still so, you still have some fundamental rules you can't, you know, you can't breach. But at the end of the day, once you're behind enemy lines, you have to have full tactical control of, of the decisions you make, right? You have to because you can't pick up the phone and call someone, right? Because, you know, there's, a, there's, there's, there's op, op, op risk if you do that. Mm-hmm. And so the way in which you make decisions, the way in which you operate have to be very well defined and people have to have – and, you know, like I think of, you know, whether it be the SEALs or Delta or these special force units, people are very clear on what their role is, right? Mm -hmm. And the accountabilities are are, Mm -hmm. – because your life depends on it, Mm -hmm. right? And that's why it works. Mm -hmm. And whilst in holocracy your life doesn't depend on it, it actually – it, it follows those same principles. Like you get questioned. No, no, no. What What is your responsibility, accountability? Mm. You know, there's no – if there's grey, well, let's define the grey, you know. There's, there cannot be any grey, right? And here's the process we use to define the grey. And so I think there's actually a lot of compatibility, right, when I think of kind of how that kind of has special forces mm. um, process works and how holocracy kind of works. Um and, yeah, I, I think it's a superior system. Look, you know, if I come back to my, my, my days in, in kind of in the sciences, um, especially, mm. with, you know, complex adaptive systems have certain features, right? And that's – if you look at any system in nature, it's essentially a complex adaptive system. And nature has a – has infinite create creativity but within some very basic rules, right, that just don't change. Mm-hmm. You know, you can believe, you know, the law of, you know, gravity exists or not. Jump off something, you're going to learn pretty quick that it exists, right? Um, you know, and that's how you've got to treat some of these basic initial conditions, right? They, they, they can't be breakable and that's when systems can adapt. And so I think the hardest thing is making sure that, you know, it's not holocracy that will fail or succeed. It's the people that implement it and stay true to it or, you know, and, and stay disciplined. You know, it's a tool. And that's the other thing, you know, it's not the golden panacea, it's a tool. Mm-hmm. And like any tool, it can be corrupted, it can be misused, right? Um, but if you're using the tool in the manner in which it's designed, it, it works. How many generations does it need to pass through before it takes a life on of its own? Mm, because yeah. you, you, you can you, you can say actually I'll come back. I was reading about the formation of special military units recently under Wellington, um, and the premise of these things were um, um, it was intelligence first, um, rule breaking, um, competence. Of the, this these people off the streets they were killers from London yeah. basically or Ireland or Scotland and Wales. So there was lots of Celts. Um, and then the weapons that they had to enable them. So intelligence, rule breaking, um, um, the, the capability to be ruthless, and um, and the weapons that they were equipped with. 
Um, but, but this is 200 years ago. You're talking about 1803, 1804. Mm. That was when it began. So it's embedded. It's now the way that these units work. Um, and obviously there's probably different um, markers of it. I'm, I'm no expert in this stuff. So how many generations does it, do you need for it to survive? Because what I heard you say a minute ago is if, you know, you could start breaking the rules and corrupting it. Yep. Therefore, it's on you. The moment it loses your sponsorship, it's on you. Yeah. So how do you how are you going to make it a dynasty, not a whim? Yeah, it's that's a great question. Um, so make it bigger than me. Beyond you, yeah. right? Um, so in any in any you know in any system, right? They're 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 the main they're attractors of that system. Mm. Yeah, and. And when enough of those attractors, yeah, um, so I think from a holocracy perspective, when I have my what the entire leadership just as bought in as me, just mm. as committed as me, then take me out of the picture is not going to matter because you put anyone else in even to take on the roles I was doing who try and then manipulate that system, they're going to be held by, to account pretty quick. Mm. And two things will happen. Either they win mm-hmm. and whoever's my replacement falls in line or that person wins and holocracy gets thrown out the door, which is the only decision that person can make. And maybe that person loses the key leadership. Okay, fine. But that's so, so how many, how, you know, how far do we have to go for holocracy to um, survive at eight squad? Mm-hmm. That's a good question. I don't know. You know, like, um, I know while this team's in place, you know, I'm, I'm now confident even I can be plucked out. And I've got – there's enough people there that now understand the value, now see – now have gotten into that operating rhythm that it'll survive without me. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't guarantee anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the reasons I, I was asking at the beginning the question of, you know, like introduce 8 Squad and what it is and the fact that you've got investors and whatever is there's there's a future where that organisation becomes part of another organisation. I think yeah. uh, having been through that process recently myself – um, you know, it's. I, I would imagine it's quite difficult um, if if you're subsumed into another organisation. It's quite difficult to retain that because the culture of the other thing will. Well, you can you can do two things, right? You can, yes, you can just depending on who buys you, right? Um, they can keep you as an operating unit. You can have a bridge between this system and another system, just like any, just yeah. like any, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can essentially still form part of a more linear power, you know, uh, power hierarchy but still retain the integrity of that unit. That's one option. Or you can f- infiltrate, right, and slowly grow that system out and, and, and consume the main system, you know. Um, yeah, look, I, I'm, uh, I think the kind of people that would want to acquire us would be interested and intrigued about the way we operate. Mm. And so I think that's an opportunity for us to prove it out and scale it beyond our walls. Mm. Um, and I think that's 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 very real. And that's what I'm hoping for, you know. Okay. Um, if we have another chat maybe in a few years, we'll see how that goes, <laughs> right? But um, but yeah, look, that's, that's, that's what, yeah, you're right. Like, you know, it, but there are definitely pathways for it to survive and exist. Do you know if there's any case studies with us? No, actually, good, that's a really good question. I, uh, well, I, I, I don't. I'm look. I, 
you know, you read things in the press around Zappos's journey and I, th- I think a lot of it is misreported. Um, they were bought by Amazon, right, um, were kept very independent. Um, how that went there, I don't know. They were probably, they'd probably be the biggest in terms of size. Um, there are a number of companies in Europe um, that and I've gone on this journey yeah, I, I, I don't know. I'd actually, it's a, it's a good question to ask. I'd probably go back to the guys at Holacracy one and, and ask mm-hmm. the question. Um, cool. And I, I guess I've got to wrap up at some point. But mm. um, f- for me, there's a logical a logical future, right, um, for someone who's worked in this model. It's like, is it a case for you of I'm only going to be in organisations that use this model moving forward, do you think, or would you go back to a traditional model? No, I don't think I could go back to a traditional, a traditional model. So um, like as in moving on to new companies in the future or creating new companies, you'd yeah, always use this model? I think so. Well, if it's me, yeah. If, if, I'm, if, I, if I'm in a driving seat, 100%. Um, I'd, I, I'd like to, as a, as, as a, I think a personal goal, show that this can scale to 500 people can scale through an acquisition mm-hmm. um i think that's uh, i'd like to sh- i'd like to prove that um and 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 talk about that journey uh, i think that'll be interesting um and you know yeah we, we we might get there you can imagine so i've i've been witness to a company that had a very specific culture very it wasn't structured under the holacracy banner because i was just not aware of it um, you know, a team of thirty people gets subsumed, and two years later, not a single person was left. Yeah, um, mate, that happens all the time. Yeah, Most acquisitions. But but I think it, I think that's the type of danger of someone buying this, and not appreciating how bought, bought in people are to the model. Because mm. you know, in any company that gets bought, there's a there's a natural attrition rate. A hundred percent is pretty unusual. Mm. Um, and I th- I think that if people love autonomy and love distributed decision making and enjoy it and are relaxed and happy and you know what damn pink stuff motivated um it's more noticeable when it goes away yeah and i think um that's why you need to prove it out at scale Mm. you know like see 30 people very easy just to Mm. absorb and no no you you slot in here now right 100 people not so much um and that's why I think the bigger we get and the more we show the value at scale, yeah. the harder it is to stop that momentum um, and that's the goal. Mm. Nice. I actually think that um, there's a uh, emergent thinking in mm. leadership, uh, you know, an awareness around pe- people and systems and methods. And uh, I was doing some research on Holacracy um, for today and uh, one of the, the, the complaints of this, you know, she seemed very good. One of her observations is actually one of your strengths, funnily enough. Um, her observations of the weaknesses of holacracy is one of your strengths. And she said um, it was about um, complex adaptive systems in nature and holacracy, in her view, wasn't catering for that to the extent that she expected. Mm. And uh, it's so funny that you talk about complex adaptive systems and deterministic chaos, uh, which is something not today, but you spoke to him about in the past. And uh, it's interesting maybe that you're appointed not only are you a point in time in the market where uh, there's um, emergent behavior 
but also you're uniquely positioned to do just as you've said yeah. because of some of those other adventures that we haven't talked about today. Yeah. I, I, I think it's fascinating because as I was hearing her complaints, I was smiling about your personal attributes and thinking, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, I, there's, a, there's a whole load more questions I have from the research I did <laughs> but, um, to try and understand what we might talk about because it's not, it's not my interview, it's just here to you know, be the eye candy. Um, um, so I should let you wrap up, <laughs> um, Andrew. Yeah, great. Um, so my final question is, is there stuff that you'd want to share with, um, I, I guess from two perspectives. One is someone who you know, does research in this and goes, oh, I, I would really love to do this from a, I'd really love this to happen in my organization, but I'm not the CEO. Mm. And then the second one would be uh, for someone starting their own business. Advice, like where to go first, mm. what to do, uh, learning from your own experiences to shortcut it. Yeah, so firstly, don't do it alone. Mm. It, you're going to fail. Mm-hmm. Um, the guys at Holacracy One, it was, Im- it was absolutely imperative um, to to have their support, right? Um, and so you have to invest in one the early education of yourself, but then the support because it's it that those first six months are tough, right? And you need that person to help you. Um, so that's the first thing. Um, second thing is you know you can look. You can be a small business unit within a greater nested system, you know, and adopt this, right? Um, that's okay. And, you know, but you're going to need an organisation that's really going to support that journey, right? And, and at least even though they, they, they may not participate directly, they need to buy into the fundamental prim- premise of, you know, what you're going to be running by and how that then interacts with the main system right so so definitely uh, I think that's possible for those people who are curious and really want to go but you're going to need the right organization to support you have you seen anything that's particularly convincing that um, a more junior person in an organization could use as a sales tool like videos from democracy one that, that that sell the idea as opposed to just explain the idea yeah um that's a good question because I haven't kind of looked at that for a while because um, we kind of bought into this a while back. Um, knows about an answer. It's fine. Yeah, no, I, I don't know. There, there's definitely some really great content that they've got up on um, on their like I think YouTube channels and Facebook channels. They've there's some really good content there, especially even the basic stuff on you know how they run tactical meetings and how they run governance meetings, which mm-hmm. are you know tools, right? Yeah. Um, so I think that's probably a good place to start, mm-hmm. and then you know go from there. Or listen to the first part of this podcast. Or listen to the podcast. Explaining why it's good. <laughs> <laughs> or just get you in. There you go. You can sell the idea to the board. Yeah. I come cheap. It's all good. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, I guys. Think we absolutely will get you back at a point in time when you think it's useful to um, to draw some parallels. Might be sooner than we think. You never know. <laughs> <laughs>